ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrier, and along with Kate Spencer, I host Forever 35, a podcast about the things we do to take care of ourselves. Join us every Wednesday with guests like author Phoebe Robinson, chef Samin Nosrat, actress Busy Phillips, and even former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright. On Mondays and Fridays, we have mini episodes where we answer listeners' questions on everyday problems like how useful a butt mask really is, how to deal with a petty friend, or how to relax after a long day. So join us Monday, Wednesday, and Friday on Forever 35, where we're not experts, but we are two friends who like to talk a lot about serums. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Hello and welcome. This is another edition of your favourite podcast that's about books, which has got Matt and Simon in it. Just narrowing it down a little bit. Yes. Uh, thank you for corresponding with us. Books of the Year at Yahoo.com is the email. Uh, you can tweet at Books of the Year. William says, uh, hello, my friends at the Books of the Year podcast. Hello. Hello, William. Further to the discussion about radio books, a favourite of mine is Travels with My Radio by Fee Glover. She came out in 2002 where she goes around the world visiting radio stations. The one in Montserrat an island with an active volcano which he has to charter a helicopter to visit, is probably the most moving. Should Simon be running short of flippant equestrian questions for Matt... Go on. William says, if your horse has bolted, is it better to leave the stable door open, perhaps with a big pile of hay, in case it decides to come back, or should you shut the door to prevent a different horse from moving in? I would leave the door open just in case. Either... Because one of two things is going to happen. Either your door, your, your horse is going to come back yes. or another horse is going to come in and you've got a horse. So uh, there is my... Have you got a horse yet? Fl- no, I don't have I a horse. you should definitely no. have a okay, horse. Okay, that's great news. Um, Sonia Weir um, texts to say, Hi, Simon, how are you? I'm, I'm fine, thank you. Good. I'm sure she also means hi, Matt. Yeah, I'm sure too? she did, but she didn't write it. Uh, I just wanted to thank you for your amazing podcast and to tell you what happened after I listened to the Levinson Wood episode. I thought it was so interesting. I added it to my wish list. Then I was wondering what to get my 76-year-old widowed dad for Christmas. He's so difficult to buy for. He used to be a massive reader, but since my mum died, he's found it hard to concentrate. Well, I've been gently encouraging him to get back into reading, but haven't been that successful. I then decided to buy him the new book by Levinson Wood. In the new year, he called me to say that he had booked a walking holiday to Jordan in March as he was inspired by reading Arabia by Levinson Wood. So thank you for the inspiration. Now this next email more helpfully says, Dear Simon and Matt. Oh, that's nice of you. To it, this is me. from Sandra Golding. Having yes. listened to you over the past... You sound very insecure. Yeah. <laughs> Who'd have thought? Having listened to you over the past few months, I thought I would send you a quick message to say thank you for all your inspiration and hard work. I'm not much of a reader, but love listening to your podcast, getting an insight in different books and authors. Following your interview with Charlie Connolly, I was intrigued by Simon's suggestion of Johnny Walker's autobiography. Mm. With my Audible account, again, thanks for that introduction, I downloaded it and set to listening to Johnny's story, beautifully read by the man himself, best DJ on radio too. Mm. I'm probably inclined to uh, agree with that. Yeah. Um, my, what a great insight into the world of radio, especially the workings of it and the men in charge. Here I've never go. really given much thought to playlists and the rules of radio, but it seems little has changed over the last 50 years. 
Here we and go. Says, go on. How can DJs be treated with so little respect? <laughs> right. By the Sandra, you powers on. that be. Yeah. Yes, DJs are only people playing records they and are. speaking on the radio. But they are so much more than that. Aren't they, though? Even the sports guy. Even the sports guy? You connect with people, cheer them up, comfort them, inform them, and generally entertain. Yes, you do. You come into our homes on a daily basis, sometimes being the only voice people uh, living on their own actually hear. I live in France. I haven't got my head around Scala Radio. I'm sure you can. Can you get that in France? You can if you've got... Uh, if you've got an, a UK-based email account, you can get the... Oh, really? The okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. As I uh, work most mornings, so I can't listen live. Matt, I know nothing about horses, mm. but good luck with whatever you're doing. <laughs> whatever it is what, you what, do. I is. mean, yeah, nice, I do get a reference, but it's whatever you do. Who's that bloke? Uh, Luke Holland, shopping in Sainsbury's this morning uh, with a pushchair, trying to hold a basket, listening to Books of the Year. Uh, I laughed so hard at Jonathan Friedland saying whacking off that security <laughs> came over to see what was going on. Equally proud in the shape. Yes. I would say out of context, that sounds a lot worse than it yes. actually is. It was very funny, though. Uh, and, and equally, uh, Fee on Twitter uh, said, almost fell off my ladder laughing at the answer to the final question from Jonathan. Hashtag brilliant. Hashtag should have come with a health warning. Okay, so thank you very much for being in touch. Uh, the email is booksoftheyear@yahoo.com. Tweet us at Books of the Year. And our guest is next. So here we go with the books of the year. And uh, delighted to say Anita Renand uh, is here. She's written. How many books have you done, Anita? This is number three. Number three. Mm. The Patient Assassin is a true tale of massacre, revenge, uh, and the Raj. Matt's going to describe. Is this cover? It a, is. A representation yes. of. Because oh. sometimes the early proof covers are. No, it they, is. They it, this is I, I got the, the, the real copy just this morning in the post. So right. this is it. So yeah. Matt and I have, have an early, kind of loose leaf uh, yeah. version. Describe the cover, Matt. Yes, yeah, so it's a great looking cover. I can see why this is the one they stuck with for, for, the, for the real thing. But it's uh, a blue and white design. It's a gorgeous sort of floral design. And uh, our main protagonist, there's a photo of him right in the centre in an oval frame. And and then the words, the patient assassin in red, a true tale of massacre, revenge and the Raj. Who was the patient assassin? He was a man called Udham Singh, um, who may not mean much to people here, but in India, everybody knows his name. He's one of this um, pantheon of freedom fighting heroes, almost with a godlike status, actually, these days. And he, the, in India... Um, there is the legend of Udham Singh. So let me just go back to why he's important. So there was a massacre, this is the 100th anniversary coming up of a massacre that took place in Punjab, which is where my family are, ethnic Punjabis. Um, and it was in Amritsar, the second city of Punjab, um, on the 13th of April, 1919. An illegal meeting was being held in a very flat, dusty, walled garden. And when I say walled garden, it's actually more of a recreational ground, surrounded by tenement blocks, a very narrow entrance, the only sort of main entrance into this place. And there were some 20,000 people in this garden, some certainly there for this Gandhian meeting, a non-violent, talking about non-violent resistance to the British rule. But there were a lot of people, including my grandfather, who were there that day, not because of politics, but because it also coincided with a uh, the most important festival in Punjab. Punjab's an agrarian state, and uh, it was the Harvest Festival. So there were lots of people, hundreds of people who were there, not for any political reason. And a man called Brigadier General Dyer drives an armed convoy to this garden, effectively blocks the only main entrance and exit, marches 50 
troopers round the perimeter and orders them to open fire without giving any warning to disperse, without any means for these people to get out. And there are disputes over how many people were killed. The British say 379. The Indians put it at more than 1,000 killed and many more who were very badly injured. And the myth of Utham Singh or the legend of Utham Singh is that he was in the garden at the time and that there's a curfew that night so people can't take out their wounded and many bleed out during the night. And in the morning, Utham Singh, this 19-year-old boy, picks up this clod of earth which is soaked in blood and he holds it up. And he's all night he's listened to people dying and he says, no matter how long it takes, no matter where it takes me, I'm going to kill the men who, res- who were responsible for this. And this is a book about what led up to the massacre, what made Udham Singh who he was, and the 20-year period that it took him to actually exact his revenge. Eventually, he is the man who walks in to a hall in Westminster and he shoots the former Lieutenant Governor of Punjab at point-blank range twice through the heart. That's his story. So I knew it was going to be a long answer, but that's if you ask who the patient assassin is, then obviously you have to start in 1919. Just for the purpose of clarity, it's Brigadier General Dyer, who you were talking about originally, who's the man responsible for Amritsar. But the the Lieutenant Governor of the Punjab, who he killed, was his boss. It's Sir Michael O'Dwyer. Yes, it's a it's a it's a it's a difficult and unhelpful similarity of names in India. You know, people often conflate the two men into one person. But Michael O'Dwyer is the man who is in charge of Punjab at the time. And when he has reports of what happened, um, he endorses what Dyer has done, what his brigadier has done, and he spends the rest of his life justifying that action in Punjab, saying that it was the right thing to do. And there were many awful things that happened after the massacre, which he also justifies. One of the many fascinating things about the book is you, you referred already, already many times to the legend of Alam Singh. So can you tell me how how much of the legend is true? Was he actually there? I mean, he obviously was the man who was responsible uh, for the shooting and he paid the price. Uh, for that, but what did you uncover as you tried to look at the legend? It became clear that in India, he's the subject of hagiography. So people insist that you know there are there are Bollywood films made about this incident. There are poems and songs made about his night in the garden. But there was no hard and fast evidence that he was there. There was also not any hard and fast evidence that he was not there. Uh, the British eventually try very, very hard to distance him from that incident, to say that he wasn't there, and they couldn't. They couldn't do that in 1945 when they had... 1940, I beg your pardon, when they had access to records that I can only dream of accessing now. All they could say is they, they did not believe he was there. Um, so in the end, I, I spoke to people, a lot of people. I went through over a 1,000 pages of documents um, held at the National Archive, held at the British Library. And these are only, I think, a tip of an iceberg of, of papers that have been found um, because this is such a politically sensitive incident. And I can say, I think, with not a degree of absolute certainty, but a, on a balance of major probability that he was in Punjab at the time, he may have been even in Amritsar at the time, but I don't think he was necessarily in the garden. I don't know that he was in the garden. 
for sure, uh, because he told people different things as well in his life. Uh, he told some that he was there. He told, you know, some that, you know, do you know what it feels like to be shot? He said he was shot in the arm. But it's difficult to say for certain that he was there. Um, so I've left it sort of open. I think I've left it open, he, you know, uh, only he knows if he was there. But in the end, it kind of doesn't even matter because it was the thing that unmade him and then remade him into this this wood. He's like Tom Ripley. He's like this sort of Tom Ripley character who has nothing. He's I should say he's he was an orphan. He was a low-caste orphan. He was brought up in an orphanage just a stone's throw away from the garden. And uh, Amritsar was his city. Amritsar was his parent. And so he is consumed by this idea of avenging what happened in the garden that night. So, um, yeah, what if he was there or not, I don't know with a degree of certainty. I never found the smoking gun, if you like, of, of whether he was actually, actually there. Um, but I can say that it made him or unmade him. I want to ask you about um, Michael O'Dwyer because... <clears throat> As we've already said, um, Rex Dyer is the one that, that uh, orders open fire, but ultimately the responsibility lies with Michael O'Dwyer. And it struck me reading this um, that you don't have Michael O'Dwyer as, as a monster because, and, and I, I, I welcome that because I thought that would be letting him off the hook far too easily because mm. bluntly, a monster, all a monster can do mm. is, is that, whereas mm. Michael O'Dwyer is a human being mm. who then decides this is how uh, I am going to treat these people. Mm. This is how I am going to enforce what I believe is my superiority over over this entire entire country. I want to talk to you about his his background because he was he brought up in Ireland and but had this link to Britain that was just felt like it was unbreakable, sort of this bond that mm. many of his countrymen obviously didn't share, but he just felt was absolutely unquestionable. Well, he was, he was a Catholic and he was brought up in Tipperary. So around him, you know, most of the Catholics around him um, hated direct rule from London. But his father was somebody who believed that actually, no, Westminster was right, that it was right that Westminster should rule. And, he was, and I should say, you know, <clears throat> they were not the type of family that starved during the famine. They had land. They had um, some, you know, a, a enough income to educate some 14 children. You know, they, they, they had means. And his father, John O'Dwyer, wanted to establish some kind of power sharing. You know, he, he believed that Ireland should have a bit more of a right to govern itself, but he did not like... They used to call them the hotheads and the thugs, uh, the Fenians. They hated the Fenians. And uh, so Michael grew up in that environment where he was always worried that, uh, you know, one day they might get his dad because there was so much violence and lawlessness. So, you know, nationalism to him equated in his mind with Irish nationalism and it was something that he was weaned on, on hating and fearing. And then there is an attack on his father's house. You know, his father and his sister are shot at in, in the house. And his father then, you know, goes into a steep decline of the stress of it and... and, and Michael believes that the stress of it causes this catastrophic stroke that robs him of the most important man in his life. And I'm, I'm glad you sort of picked up on... It was really hard not to think of him as a monster because I was raised to think of him as a monster. Those, those names, O'Dwyer and Dyer, were the stuff of nightmares for anybody who's Punjabi. You know, they, they did the worst thing. Um... But nobody is a monster. Nobody's a black and white monster. We are all humans. We're all the product of, of where we have been and what we have seen. Um, I think 
what he does is monstrous. I think the things that he believes ends up believing are monstrous. But it was very important to understand and get under his skin as well as everybody else's in the book. I'm also struck by the reactions afterwards in in the years later. You've already said that um, O'Dwyer... Um, carries on with his life justifying Mm. what has happened and justifying that massacre. Whereas there is um, an incident involving Dyer Mm. when he's a much, much older man, when he overhears two students. Could you just recount that two students talking about? Well, I think think sort of Dyer is a, a really complicated man in a way that Michael O'Dwyer is not so complicated. So, I, I mean, just, just for ease of understanding who these people are, I'll, I'll call him the brigadier. The brigadier is the man who marched the men into the garden and Sir Michael. I had to actually call them by different names because to get over that, that sort of hatred and fear thing that uh, is endemic and, and we woven into those names, I had to think of them as Rex, uh, the brigadier, and Sir Michael, who was the lieutenant governor. And Rex is a soldier's soldier. You know, he's a man, they say, you know, he, he jumps into the fray with a... a pistol hanging from his teeth. He's that kind of man, rolls up his sleeve. He's, he's the son of India, you know, he was born in India. And later, after the massacre, it seems he goes through this, this public inquiry, which is eviscerating, where he is hauled over the coals for his actions and inactions that day. And uh, so Michael keeps telling him, no, you did the right thing. You absolutely did the right thing. There's a debate in the House of Commons and he stands by him. But it seems as if Rex is not sure. And there's this one moment when he is on a book tour himself uh, in the 1920s. And he is in the Oxford Union. Um, but we don't know this yet. We just It's a, it's a really little memoir I discovered that I, you know nobody has read by a man called Kripalani, who's an Anglophile, who um, is having a chat with a, a, a British student. And the subject of the Amritsar massacre comes up. And it becomes very, very heated. And Kripalani is saying that man should have hanged. He was a monster. He should have hanged. And the British student, his friend, is agreeing with him. And they just notice that there is a an elderly man who looks sort of interested in their conversation, is leaning in. They think no more of it. They carry on talking. And then finally, this man gets up to walk past them. And he just stops. And he says, can I just ask, I've overheard your conversation. Can I just ask you, what do you make of uh, Brigadier General Dyer? And Kripalani goes into one. He just says he's a monster. He should not be alive. The fact that he was not hanged is, 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 is disgusting. And he just looks at them and he says, I am that unfortunate man, and kind of limps off, broken and hollowed out. And Rex Dyer undoubtedly was destroyed by what had happened subsequently and haunted by it. You know, they say that on his deathbed, his family sort of say that uh, there was a terrible electrical storm the night that he dies and they try and comfort him and, you know, they try and say, you're going to get better. He's had a a terrible stroke. And he says, I don't want to get better. I want to meet my maker. Some say that I did right. Some say that I did wrong. I want to know for sure. So, you know, there 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 is suffering in him where there is a total absence of suffering in Michael O'Dwyer, Sir Michael, the man who the patient assassin eventually goes out and uh, and kills. Did the patient assassin try and kill anyone else? Was it always the one target that he wanted? He wanted he wanted both Dyer and O'Dwyer, but Dyer died of natural causes before he could reach England, and you know his 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 uh, his efforts to reach these men took him all over the world. It's an extraordinary journey that takes him... He, he lives that adage, my enemy's enemy is my friend. 
And so like this sort of Tom Ripley character, he finds every single enemy of the Raj and tries to learn from them, whether they are anarchists or they are gathers, these uh, nationalists, militant nationalists who are in India and in America, the Bolsheviks in Russia. He goes to all of them and learns what he can until he's ready to do this thing. But his focus is on these two men. Um, there are rumours that he tells another um, friend of his, this peddler community that existed in Britain, a peddler friend, that I killed a policeman in India. But the peddler friend doesn't believe him. And I, I had no corroboration uh, to stand up whether he'd actually murdered anybody else. He certainly smuggled guns for the, you know, the revolution. But... Um, whether he actually killed anybody else, I, I, I didn't find any proof of that. You've mentioned um, your family connection through your grandfather, but it's, it actually coincidentally goes stronger than that because uh, your husband is Simon Singh, broadcaster, mm. author, mathematician, clever guy. Clever guy, but can't do voices. <laughs> can't do voices. Hopeless. If you want West Country, forget it. And he was born in the West Country. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the, irony, so the irony of this. So <laughs> like, no. no excuse. So oh. you just, because you, you mentioned peddlers there, just explain <clears throat> how, how Simon... So Simon's grandfather um, came over in the 1920s and was one of this first wave of immigration from the Punjab after the war and was a peddler. And a lot of these uh, men came, first of all, you know, believing that they were part of the empire and they could make their lives better and finding that nobody would employ them when they came over here. So they started doing work for themselves, self-employed. And the easiest thing to do was to buy fabric and clothes and socks and sell them as peddlers around the country. And that was Simon's grandfather. And this network of peddlers that existed was one that Udham Singh plugged himself into because it's a ready-made sort of network of intelligence and places to stay and safe houses. And my husband's family lived with Udham Singh. And we only found that out years into our marriage. It was really an odd thing, you know, that um, I think I was sort of telling him, I think we were married for about three or four years. And I said, um, oh, you know, my, my grandfather, we were talking about my grandfather. I said, you know, he was there in, on the day of the Jallianwalabagh massacre, you know, just by fortune, he wasn't caught up in the bullets. And he said, well, that's really weird because my cousin's grandfather lived with, my cousin's father lived with Udham Singh. And so, yeah, that was just a really bizarre thing. And I, I toyed with the idea of writing the book. It was the first book I thought I might write because it's a personal thing. And because it's personal, I didn't want to go near it because I thought, actually, no, I need time, space. I need to know if I can write, you know, this is an important story. Uh, but then as these things sort of presented themselves, including this sort of other connection, it sort of compelled me, actually. So it was always there, ticking away in the back of my head. I, I want to talk to you about the... Let's talk... He's the, the patient assassin, so let's talk about the assassination. And I loved, I loved the chapter where, where you describe what happens because it, it, it's always... It, the book's been building to this and it, it absolutely delivers in that sort of thriller style of you know what's going to happen, but you, you, you just want to keep reading. And I want to talk to you in particular about uh, Bertha Herring, who's, uh, who's got this great role uh, in that she is the only one that jumps up when he's fired the shots mm. to, to stop with them saying getting out because he, he's, he's barreling through people mm. to get having, having, having completed his assassination mm. and trying to escape. Mm. She's the one that stops him. Well, she's this, she's this uh, very sort of large... I mean, I, I sort of describe her as a Margaret Rutherford and she does look mm. like Margaret Rutherford, <laughs> actually. Um, 
And she was an ambulance driver during World War One. So and, and a really feisty woman by all accounts. And when Utham fires his gun, not just at uh, Sir Michael killing him instantly, but also fires at the Secretary of State for India, the former Lieutenant uh, Governor of Bombay, and the former Lieutenant Governor before Sir Michael of Punjab. You know, he, he has deadly aim. He fires six bullets and they all find their mark. You know, as, as, as a lawyer later says, every bullet found a billet. He was, a, he, you know, just found these people and did what he meant to do. And then he, as you say has this mad dash towards the end of Caxton Hall, towards the door. Everybody's paralysed, everyone's on the floor, everybody's crouching, then Bertha will (laughs) not have it. And she sort of body checks him into this wood-panelled wall. And it breaks the spell in, in Caxton Hall, in the Tudor room. And suddenly people come to life and they jump on him. But it is her. And she revels in that, by the way. That is her that is her story forevermore. Mm. And the newspapers love her because, you know, there she is. And every time she tells the story, it's more and more colourful. Yeah. Uh, and, as, and as you say uh, in the book, a, a moment of extraordinary sensitivity because this is 1940. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Second World War has broken out and there are many Indian troops who are fighting for the Allied cause. So... So the British need to try and separate uh, Amritsar from this, don't they? They absolutely do. Uh, and, and there is a, a whole cover-up that you know I uncovered, actually, in, in researching the book that just astonished me. You know, the, the collusion with the media, for a start, which is that you are not to tie this to Jallianwalabagh. The trial of Udham Singh must not coincide with Jallianwalabagh. We have to separate him from this because... You cannot have this going out to Indian soldiers who are fighting and dying under this flag. Uh, so, yes, that's an enormous thing. And it's a thing that, you know, the Germans leap on straight away. So the first news bulletin goes out on the BBC at 9 o'clock. And Goebbels immediately, in Germany, puts out a, a bulletin at 9.15, which goes in a very different direction to the British one. So the BBC Home Service, it's a very dry report that uh, Sir Michael has been shot. It's factual. When Goebbels, uh, his news bulletin goes out, he's a freedom fighter. He is punishing a man who did a monstrous thing. And it keeps building and building. You know, the Germans are are then using it to describe Britain as a monstrous, oppressive country. You know, we are fighting, you know, his his argument that runs through, and you can hear it loud and clear in the translation of, of his news broadcasts thereafter, is that we are fighting, we are the good guys. We are fight- they are the bad guys. This is what they do. And there will be a revolution in India. So he keeps sort of putting this out that this is the start of a revolution. Then India will rise up because of this. This is the start of something to gird his own armies that, you know, there is something going on and we are fighting uh, a just fight against a wicked enemy. So it becomes this political grenade. And you can see why, you know, um, the IPI, uh, police intelligence unit, and you've got MI5 and everybody else sort of getting together saying, we have to separate this from Jallianwalabagh, and we have to paint this man not as a political assassin, but as this lone wolf maniac who's just got lucky, you know, got lucky firing six bullets and, and meeting the mark and getting into, you know, this meeting of the great and good. Uh, in an extraordinary way, how he gets in there and, and unchallenged, like a chameleon. You know, he becomes invisible so he can walk into this place and do this thing. And they just want to separate him from any political motive at all and turn it into something else. And so that was that was quite shocking. You know, the way they sort of communicate, the authorities, British authorities, uh, with 
Reuters, for example, and say you will not tie this to the massacre and all the press kind of fall into line. It's a bit shocking. So that feels quite dated. Some of the other aspects of the book feel quite contemporary, though. Well, I mean, I think it is a really contemporary thing. It's, you know, you, the, these sort of hashtag fake news, uh, Russian collusion, you know, the, the fact that the Bolsheviks do so much to aid him in this, aid Udham Singh in this vendetta. They, they, they become involved in the Indian uprising, in the, you know, the Indian nationalism. They, they fund, they arm, they train. You know, I, I think I say, you know, like sort of toy soldiers, they train them and they wind them up and then they send them back. So, you know, it is actually, and it's also very, I think it's also a very contemporary story in the way that you radicalise the dispossessed. So Udham Singh is the lowest of the low in India. He has nothing. He is, he is an orphan. He has come back. He has no means to support himself, really. And he is low caste. You know, he's born Cambodge. He's, he's low caste. So when a man has nothing and has only crushing reality facing him, it is very easy to be caught up and radicalised, and that's what happens to him. You mentioned at the beginning, Anita, that uh, Adam Singh is considered a hero. But I think I'm right in saying that Gandhi called it an act of insanity. Mm -hmm. So was there, at the time, was it slightly more nuanced, the response? Well, Gandhi, was a, Gandhi didn't believe in violent insurrection. He believed in passive resistance and non-violence. That's what he sort of lived by and died by. Um, so after the shooting takes place, both Gandhi and Nehru, who are leading lights of the Congress Party, Nehru, who becomes the first prime minister of India, um, they repudiate it immediately because they are trying to, you know, they're trying to give counter-narrative to that which Sir Michael has spent his whole life spinning. Sir Michael has always said, Indians cannot rule for themselves. They are barbaric, they are savage, they turn on each other, they are, you know, violence is embedded in them. You know, he, he, he classifies, Sir Michael classifies Indians in a way that a botanist will classify dangerous species. So that's his argument. So when, you know, this enormously public murder takes place and it becomes this huge international incident with the Germans leaping on it. Both Nehru and Gandhi wash their hands of it. And, they, and, and the, why they do that is because, look, you can deal with us and we are rational men and we are men of peace or you can put up with this. So they, they cut him off. And there's that, a bigger prize, really. There's a bigger prize and the prize is, is, is independence. And so, you know, this, this man who has done this act, Udham Singh, you know, I should say, actually, when he does commit the murder, he gives a different name. Uh, and it's a name that he wants to cling to. It's the name he wants to be hanged under. He gives his name as Muhammad Singh Azad. Muhammad, a Muslim name. Singh, a Sikh name. Azad meaning freedom. And the message is a coded message to India, which is, I did this for all of you. Now it's time for you to get together and push these people out of your country. Um, so, you know, that is what Nehru and Gandhi says. This is, you can deal with a him or people like him or deal with us, but the end result will be the same. You're not staying. Anita and Anne, it's always a pleasure. Uh, your books are a delight always, and The Patient Assassin is brand new. From Anita and Anne, thank you, Anita, very much. My pleasure. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Christopher Kimball, host of Milk Street Radio. If you'd like to change the way you cook and also think about food, please check out the Milk Street podcast. 
We travel around the world to find pizza in Tokyo, Egyptian food in Berlin, and Bhutanese farmers in Vermont. We speak to Jamie Oliver, Rachel Ray, Al Roker, Ina Garten, as well as Michael Twitty, Marcus Samuelson, and Alice Waters. And we'll introduce you to recipes that will change the way you cook, from bright pink Tottenham cake to Afghan dumplings to shoyu sugar steak, and that one is direct from Hawaii. It's a whole new world of food right here on Milk Street Radio. Please check us out on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts, or go to 177milkstreet.com. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the aging process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford, and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.